0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us a special Palm Sunday message titled, Why Was Jesus Crucified? Let's check it out. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you on this Palm Sunday morning. Um, As you would have already heard in service multiple times, uh, we do have next Saturday Easter Feaster, so big outreach, um, and hopefully you grab some invites on the way out and you let people know, hey, at my church, next Saturday is a fun thing. Bring the kids, bring your neighbors. It'll be a great time. Last year was a a, a ton of fun, and my kids definitely have been looking forward to it. Um, So next Saturday, that's all happening here. And then, of course, Sunday is Easter Sunday, and Easter Sunday is possibly, Um, neck and neck tied with Christmas for being the easiest time to invite someone to church. So um, I'm sure there are people on your mind, there are people in your family, people you work with, neighbors, so on, um, that you'd love to see come to hear the good news of Jesus. And so I hope you take the chance next week uh, to bring somebody to church. Um, And I'm going to tell you, hands down, we are 100% definitely going to have a lot of visitors in church next week. And so, I want to take a moment now, um, and as a church family, let's take a moment and let's pray for these visitors that are going to come next week. There are a lot of people in our culture and our society that something about Easter, you know, well, it's Easter Sunday, you go to church, and a lot of people will choose to come here for their Easter Sunday, and I hope that they don't just come and have a nice time at church, but they have their lives changed. So, come on, everybody, would you take a moment with me, and let's pray for any guests, any visitors that are here next weekend. So, Lord, we believe that people are going to come to church. Something about Easter, something about its cultural relevance for us in 21st century America, it's still on people's minds. So Lord, we're anticipating next week that there are going to be people here that don't know you. They don't know your goodness. Their lives haven't been changed and transformed by your goodness. Lord, we pray that you break through every single barrier that people put up, every wall, every hurt, every frustration, every reason people have to be angry at church or angry at you and you break through, and you let people know that you are love, you are good. Lord, that following you, put, making you Lord of our lives is the only way to live. So Lord, we trust you. We ask even now that this week you prepare people to hear the good news of your son next weekend. Lord, we love you, we trust you, and we lift everything up to you. Easter Feaster, Easter Sunday services, and everything other area ministry that we're a part of here at Word of Life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you, everybody, and I hope you join me in continuing to pray for people as we go into this week. I heard a story a number of years ago, and I'm 100% sure it's not true, but it's a good story nonetheless. There was a man who was going to go and be a guest speaker at a church somewhere, and he'd never been there before, but he was invited to come and speak, and as he got to the church building, he kind of started to go inside, and he looked up, and above the doorway of the church was a big marble slab, and in the marble slab, they chiseled in the words, we preach Christ crucified, which is from 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified. He noticed as he came in that there was a little bit of ivy that was growing right next to the marble. He went inside and preached and shared the message that was on his heart, and it went well, it was received well, and the church said, hey, you know what? We'd like to invite you back next year. So sure enough, he turns up the same church, visiting speaker the next year, and he goes in, and as he's going in, he sees the same marble that he saw last year that had caught his attention because it was so ornate and so beautiful, and he loved the Bible verse that was on there. But the ivy that he noticed last year had grown a little bit. So now it said, we preach Christ. Went inside, shared the message. It went well, and they invited him to come back the next year. So he goes back the next year, third year in a row. Goes in, and as he's walking into the building, there above the doorway, the marble, the ornate marble that looked great, had a wonderful Bible verse there. It used to say, we preach Christ crucified, but now it just says, we preach. If we stop preaching Christ crucified, it's a matter of time until we stop preaching Christ. And soon enough, we're just hot air. The question I want to put to you is, why is it important to preach Christ crucified? To find the answer to that question, I want to ask another question. Why was Jesus crucified? To start, I started to think about, why did the Romans crucify anybody? For about 100 years before the birth of Jesus, the Roman Empire had held political authority in the region of Judea, including its capital city, Jerusalem. And the Roman Empire continued expanding and advancing, and by the time of Jesus, the Romans were still the world's superpower, and the Emperor Augustus, like all emperors, was ambitious and had grand plans and wanted to achieve some impressive projects. Augustus had figured out that the military demands of the empire were expensive, just like military expenses and war are expensive today. Feeding legions of soldiers was expensive. Forging swords, spears, and armor was expensive. Wages for soldiers was expensive. Or Augustus wanted to spend all the money he could on palaces and roads and amphitheaters and beautifying cities. The idea of spending all this money on squashing skirmishes in a city you won't ever even visit was a problem. The whole point of having an empire was to enjoy all the benefits of being the world's superpower, which in reality meant that you were taxing everyone within an inch of starvation. This was the balancing act of the Roman Empire. You don't want to uh, to tax the subjects of your empire too much because if they starve to death today, they can't pay taxes tomorrow. It's brutal and cruel, and it also helps explain why tax collectors were hated so much at the time of Jesus. The goal is to tax everyone as much as we can and to make sure everything is running peacefully so we're not wasting money on defeating rebellions. For the Romans during the time of Jesus, everything being peaceful and calm with everyone paying their taxes on time was the key objective. As long as this was how it was happening, the emperor was happy spending money on aqueducts and coliseums and living large and in charge back in the capital city of Rome. But just like you and me, this is not the way the average person who lived in the empire wanted to live. People oppose tyranny. People are hardwired to desire freedom and autonomy. Consequently, uprisings, some big and some small, would come up all over the empire, including Judea. This meant you had to mobilize the military, and it required a response. That meant taxes were being spent on squashing these frivolous rebellions instead of the taxes going to the projects and places that the emperor cared about. So the Romans had an idea, and this idea worked. They started public crucifixions. The public crucifixions had one purpose— To make sure everyone knows this is what happens when you mess with Rome. They crucified to maintain peace through fear. So then why did the Romans crucify Jesus? Well, the Romans were manipulated by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The religious leaders didn't have the legal authority to kill Jesus, so they engineered a situation where it looked like an uprising might come if Jesus was allowed to continue. So the Romans, whose only concern was to keep peace so they could keep the taxes rolling back to Rome, they killed Jesus on a cross. For the Romans, they crucified Jesus just so an expensive uprising could be avoided. But that's not a satisfactory answer to our question. It's truthful. It's historically accurate. It answers the question, why was Jesus crucified? But it's unsatisfactory because if that's all there was to it, we wouldn't still be talking about it 2,000 years later. This answer doesn't explain why Jesus' disciples would risk their lives to continue the mission. It doesn't help us understand why there are hundreds of millions of people all over the world who claim to have their lives changed because of the crucifixion of Jesus. So my friends, I persist with the question, why was Jesus crucified? To consider all of this, I've tried to organize it in a logical flow, but it does mean I'll be jumping all over the place, and I'll be considering the historical narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection, but just be forewarned, I'll be jumping and skipping around all around the New Testament story, and I'll be getting out of sequence in the only way I could think about organizing my thoughts. But I'll give you a quick overview of the whole crucifixion narrative, so if anyone is unfamiliar with the biblical account, hopefully it lays out the story before I jump from one thing to the next thing, and then back again, and then forward again. I felt a quick overview might be helpful. So at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles for about three years. He's gathered a strong following, he's become well known around the region, and he's recruited 12 men to be his disciples. The disciples were to learn from their master and faithfully continue his work and teaching. Along the way, Jesus had also made some enemies, specifically the religious leaders who were convinced that Jesus was creating problems with his radical teaching. And they failed to see that he was the Messiah and that he spoke the words of life. We come to the Last Supper. And Jesus shares the traditional Jewish Passover meal with the disciples. After dinner, one of them, Judas, sneaks out and tells Jesus' enemies that he will help them arrest Jesus. Later on, Jesus then leaves to go to the Mount of Olives to pray. He asks some of the disciples to come with him. And while he's praying, they keep falling asleep. But then Judas comes and betrays Jesus by leading the temple guards to arrest him. He gives the signal of a friendly kiss and greeting him as rabbi. Jesus is then arrested and questioned by the religious leaders. It was these leaders who didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or the Messiah, and they dismissed him as a troublemaker. In their outrage, they manipulated and deceived the Romans in hopes that they would crucify Jesus for them. Many in the city believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and others have been whipped into a frenzy by these religious leaders, and they believe him to be dangerous. Jesus is then required to stand trial before the Roman governor of the region, Pontius Pilate. Pilate, whose only concern is peace and quiet, is between a rock and a hard place. If he doesn't kill Jesus, half of the city may riot. If he does kill Jesus, the other half might riot instead. After trying to find a way to wriggle out of this predicament, he orders Jesus crucified. First, Jesus is whipped, scourged, and beaten by the Roman soldiers. Then they place a crown of thorn on his head, and dress him like a king to mock him before carrying his cross to Calvary. And there they nail him to a cross, and he hung there for hours until he breathed his last and died. And as we consider the story of what happened 2,000 years ago, I want to make something clear to us. Jesus went willingly to the cross. Jesus went to the cross willingly. And how do we know Jesus went to the cross willingly? Well, I've got three reasons. How do we know Jesus went to the cross willingly? Firstly, he predicted it. These are three instances from Mark's gospel. Then Jesus began to tell them the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, The Son of Man, talking about himself, is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. And then again in chapter 10, taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, We're going to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now these are three times in Mark's gospel, but there are many other times where he tells to the disciples and others that he is going to indeed die. The second reason, how do we know Jesus went to the cross willingly? Secondly, he knew it was his mission. This is from John's gospel. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Should I ask the Father to keep me off the cross? Should I ask the Father to help me overpower Pilate and the soldiers? And then Jesus answers his own question. No, this is the very reason I came. Jesus recognizes what's in front of him, the horror of the cross. But he recognizes that this is the very reason he's come. This is indeed his mission. Third reason. How do we know Jesus went to the cross willingly? He had the power to stop it. Matthew 26. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi. He exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come to do. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But the one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly. Fast forward a little bit in the story. Jesus talking to Pilate in John's gospel. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power Pilate believes he has the power to release you or to crucify you. Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Jesus saying, I could ask for thousands of angels, not dainty little fairies, but heavenly warriors. It would be the shortest dust up in history. And to Pilate, the man who had the full weight of the Roman Empire behind him, the man who was backed up by the most powerful empire the world had ever known, to this man, Jesus said, the only power you have over me is the power I let you have. How do we know Jesus went to the cross willingly? He predicted it. He knew it was his mission, and he had the power to stop it. As you read about Jesus' crucifixion, it's helpful to remember that he predicted that this would happen, and that he saw that this very moment, as his mission was, despite having the power and ability to stop it, this was his mission. If Jesus went willingly to the cross to answer the question, why was Jesus crucified, it might be better answered by considering a somewhat different question. The question I want to put to us today is, why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? If he knew it was going to happen, but he saw it as his mission, even though he could have stopped it, it's perfectly reasonable, and I would even say expected, that we should ask why. I hope we would all agree that it was for far more important reasons than the Romans preventing a nuisance uprising in Jerusalem. And I've got five reasons I want to put to you today. The first, why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? The first thing, to fulfill God's promise. We read this verse a moment ago, and this is Jesus as he's being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew twenty don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Jesus went willingly to the cross to fulfill God's promise. And what did the scriptures promise? Well, there are libraries of books written on this topic alone, but of paramount importance. They promised a coming Messiah. This is seen in the mood of the culture at the time. This is from Luke's gospel early on. It says everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. For the Jewish people, life was brutal under the rule of Rome. Poverty rates were extremely high. The temple was corrupted. But the Jewish people lived with the hope of a Messiah, a savior, a redeemer, someone who would rise up and rescue God's people. The belief was that the Messiah would bring a temporary, wouldn't bring a temporary fix, but a true, permanent rescue for God's people. The arrival of the Messiah meant victory and peace and prosperity. And this promise of a Messiah appears to be consistently at the fore of people's minds. The first century Jewish people were largely a desperate group of people with a strong sense of hope because of God's promises. The scriptures teach that God was going to finish what he had started. The people were sinful and broken and did devastating and hurtful things. And God said long ago that even though you, humanity, are at fault, I'm going to take responsibility and fix this up. And this brings us to the next one. Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Secondly, because it was the only way. It was the only way. Matthew 26 again. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed his, with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. If it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. If it is possible, if there's any other way we can do this, if there's any other way at all for us to figure this out without a crucifixion, please, let's do it that way. But I want your will to be done, not mine. This prayer from Jesus to the Father helps us understand that this was indeed the only way for God's promises to be fulfilled. This was the only way for Jesus to accomplish his mission. I would think that this would once again cause us to ask the question, why? Why does there need to be a cross? Why did the Son need to suffer? Why did Jesus need to die? Why was this his mission? To find an answer, I turn you to Romans 8. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. It was the just requirement of the law, the just requirement of God's Old Testament covenant. We get this. We understand this in principle in our own lives when someone forgives someone of anything. Someone has to absorb the cost. Someone has to eat the cost of forgiveness. It's just and fair that an offense requires people to make amends, but the whole idea of forgiveness changes everything. The Bible often uses money to help illustrate forgiveness. And if you loan someone money and they didn't repay, but you decide just to forgive them, you've lent them money, they have not paid it back, and you decide, I'm just going to forgive them, they don't have to pay you back because you've forgiven them, you are accepting the cost of that forgiveness. If someone does something hurtful to you and you forgive them, You are accepting the emotional cost. Sin, mistakes, shortcomings, imperfections, all of it is disobedience to God, and we need forgiveness. We need, as we just read from Romans, we need the law to be fully satisfied for us. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He accepted the punishment. He paid the debt we owe. He received the death we deserve. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see this from John the Baptist. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God points to the animal sacrifices made at the temple that the people were familiar with. And the sin that Jesus took upon himself was not only the sin of an individual, but of the whole world. The debt was not partially paid, but fully paid. Another illustration using money, it's a helpful way to think about this. If you owed someone $10,000... You might not be able to repay the full 10,000, but if you could come up with 1,000 or half and offer 5,000, you might be able to prolong having to repay. Jesus didn't pay a portion of what we owe to buy us some time. The punishment that sin and disobedience to God deserves is death. So when we hear the good news of Jesus that he died for me, this becomes the greatest news we could ever imagine. The death that I deserve has been taken on by Jesus. God loves humanity so much that he became humanity By sending his son to pay the price that you and I could never ever pay. And with the debt repaid, each and every reason that we are living separated from God has been dealt with so we can live in a healed and whole relationship with our Heavenly Father. The debt has been paid in full. The punishment was given and every requirement of the law was met. And this is only possible because Jesus is the only one who is sinless. Therefore, he is the only human ever to be qualified to take on the sin of the world. God loves humanity so much that he became humanity by sending his son to pay the price that we could not pay. We see Jesus' sinlessness described from multiple New Testament authors. And you know that Jesus came, says John in one of his epistles. Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Peter writes, "'He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone.'" The writer of Hebrews says, this high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now, nobody likes to be called a sinner. Nobody likes to be accused of being a sinner or doing sinful things but I also don't think anyone with a straight face or with any kind of integrity would ever try to say that they're perfect. Every few years or so, I go through a, a phase where I'll listen to um, debates and I'll listen to um, different um, podcasts and things around the subject of apologetics. And so I listen to debates between atheists, people that are angry at God and hate the idea of church and God and religion and so on, and they will argue tooth and nail with people that you know, are arguing on behalf of Christianity. And I'll get absorbed in this, and I'm kind of in that funk right now. Pray for Megan, because she's constantly on in the house. But as I'm listening to these arguments of these, you know, these people that you know, are very learned, like you know, well-versed you know, men and women that know the Bible inside and out, and they have a great understanding of Christian concepts and philosophy and so on, and they're arguing against these ardent atheists, what became apparent to me is that when the idea of morality and ethics came up is that the atheists were willing to concede that they were not perfect. And not even just the case that they were not perfect, but they weren't perfect according to their standard. These atheists don't care about God's standard. That's not their concern. They're angry at God. They hate God. They don't think, you know, they're arguing tooth and nail that God's not even real. They don't care about God's standard, but they're willing to say, my idea of right and wrong, I have not not lived up to my standard. That's a fascinating thought to me. In this idea, of, you know, uh, this idea of sin and sin nature and us all being imperfect and so on, it's not even that we haven't lived up to God's standard, it's that any standard at all, that culture has any standard at all, that society has any culture at all that may be normative for you, we have all failed to live up to that standard, God or otherwise. And if we haven't lived up to our own standard, how much more would we have to be honest and say we haven't lived up to God's standard? I'm told that the problem of sin is one of the most offensive parts of the Christian message. But does anybody disagree with it? We've all fallen short. We're all made in the image of God, and we've all failed to uphold that image. We've all failed to live up to the generally accepted ideas of morality and ethics of the wider culture, even if society's ethics aren't based on God's teaching or the Bible. Even beyond that, we've all betrayed our own consciences and our own standards, Even though we hate being called sinners and we're deeply offended at the accusation, we also stand with no defense, and we have to quietly acknowledge our part in the problem. If I haven't lived up to my own standards, I certainly haven't lived up to God's. If Jesus didn't die in my place, I would have to suffer the consequences of my actions, and I would have no sensible grounds for pleading my innocence and claiming perfection. This verse from 2 Corinthians shed some great light on this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. I'll read 19 again. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, because Jesus paid the price. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? First thing we said is that it fulfills God's promises. The second thing, it was the only way. And thirdly, to demonstrate God's love. My favorite passage in the whole Bible, Romans 5.8, but God clearly shows and proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God clearly shows and proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is our foundation. We say it all the time. We put it on T-shirts, God loves you. But how do we know God loves us? The cross, it was proven. It was on grand display for all to see. God's love was proven on the cross. Another well-known passage that speaks to this love of God. Luke twenty-three thirty-two. Jesus is about to be hung on the cross and crucified. It says, two other, both criminals, were allowed to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Is that how you would pray for people who had just driven nails through your hands and feet? Would you ask God to forgive the people that were carrying out your death sentence? Would your killers, not knowing what they were doing, give you a compassion towards them? But this is the love of God. The cross somehow shows two extremes at once. The absolute abhorrence to sin and the unquestionable love of God. The very real pain and suffering that Jesus was subjected to, the agony and the torture, the horror of taking on the sin of the world, shows without any question God's complete and utter disdain for sin and unholiness. His absolute rejection of sin is seen on full display as the price is paid in full on the cross. The cross makes it undeniable that God truly hates sin. But we see the other extreme, that the love of God is shown on the cross. God didn't send a stranger. God didn't make a backroom deal somewhere. He became humanity. By God sending his son to walk among us, he became humanity and took on all the punishment for sin in the whole world. And it was an extreme act of love. Because it wasn't done for the qualified. It wasn't done for those that were worthy. But as we just read in Romans 5, it was done while we were still sinners. In the middle of our destruction, before we ever even tried to apologize, before we ever even tried to get our act together, Jesus took on the full weight of sin and accepted the cost. There is no question about whether God is casual towards sin when you consider all that he did so that we could overcome sin and death. And there is no question whether God loves us because he did it all for us despite not even coming close to deserving it. We hate sin not because we're angry, judgmental, bitter people. We hate sin because sin ruins people's lives and we love people. The love of God has such a profound effect on us that it changes us. When we believe and start to live in the love of God, not as a concept or a theological position, but as our day-to-day experience, it changes us. This well-known passage from 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them and we live in God. Our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face Him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it's for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced His perfect love. We love each other because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Fourth reason. Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Fourth thing. To initiate the new covenant. We're going to be taking communion together at the end of service today. So if you don't have your elements, now might be a time just to raise a hand and the ushers will gladly help you out. But to initiate the new Jesus needed to fulfill or accomplish the old. The Bible that you and I have today, around three quarters of it, is the Old Testament. And it details God's story with humanity. Through the Old Testament, we see God's character. We learn about his values and the problems that sin causes in our lives. Within the story of God's relationship with humanity, specifically his chosen people, Israel, we also see God make an agreement or covenant with his people. This includes a series of animal sacrifices and rituals so that the people could make a kind of repayment and have a temporary relief from the consequences of sin. But the animal sacrifices that are described and commanded in great detail in the Old Testament were never meant to be the permanent solution. In hindsight, as people who have committed to following Jesus, we can see that they were all to point people forward to Jesus the Messiah. They were making an animal sacrifice today for the sins they committed yesterday, but one day God will make a way for all their sins to be dealt with once and for all. And now we know that this is what Jesus achieved for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. The writer of the Hebrews says this, First, Christ said, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses, the old covenant, Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. I have an analogy. It's not perfect, but it was helpful to me as I was thinking about this. Imagine you had a house that you loved, but the mortgage on this house was really, really steep. And every month you struggled to pay the full amount and you struggled to pay it on time. Typically, you ended up paying less than you owed, but you love the house and you want to live in the house even though you're unable to keep up with the payments. The threat of foreclosure and eviction is always hanging over your head. And you're aware, very aware of how behind you are in your payments. And you don't ever see a way of ever being able to keep up in making these payments up again. But then the person who owns the bank that you have a mortgage with who is coincidentally also the person that owns the construction company that built the house. That person comes and says, I know you love the house. I don't want to evict you. I want you to enjoy the house that I built for you, but you cannot pay me what you owe because I love you and I want you to enjoy the house. I'll pay the mortgage for you in full at my expense. The contract that says you have to pay the mortgage every month is fulfilled. That doesn't mean the mortgage was bad. But it means it's completed. Matthew 5:17 says, "Do not presume that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the old covenant. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I haven't come to rip up the mortgage papers, but to pay the balance in full." Romans 10, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. The mortgage meant you could stay in the house that you love so much. Now you can stay in the house mortgage-free because I paid it all. Galatians 3.24, let me put it another way. The law, the old covenant was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Living in the house with the mortgage meant you could see how much you love the house, and it was a way for you to live there before Jesus came and settled the debt in full. 2 Corinthians, for all of God's promises, all, every single promise you can find in the old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And now you get to enjoy living in the house that you love, enjoying everything that's in the house, not because you've kept up with mortgage payments, but because the terms of the contract have been met. Jesus initiated a new covenant. Famously, he taught the disciples about it as he shared communion with them for the first time. Look, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out for you as a sacrifice. This new covenant, the new agreement between God and humanity means we can live in a healed and whole relationship with God the Father, confident that our debt has been paid, our punishment has been fulfilled. The receiving God's free gift of salvation is the greatest thing that can happen to someone. The new covenant means I don't have to be afraid of not measuring up to perfection or making animal sacrifices year after year, but instead daily turning to Jesus and enjoying the forgiveness He generously gives. As I experience His kindness and goodness, it transforms my own heart and corrects my thinking. My entire life is turned around as I repent of destructive habits and harmful thinking. With Jesus as Lord of my life, I accept a new set of values with priorities and I do it with joy. I cherish peace and freedom. I don't wanna go back to the spiritual prison Jesus freed me from. The threat of hell disappears as I trust that my eternity is in his hands. And instead, the promise of heaven shifts my perspective and gives an unwavering hope. This, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, the only one qualified to die for us and set us free. Fifth reason. Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Number five, he knew the outcome. He knew the outcome. We read these verses earlier as we looked at Jesus predicting his own death multiple times. But it also says this in Mark 8, he would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him, but after three days he will rise again. The New Testament records many times that Jesus talked about the crucifixion that would happen, but he also knew that the crucifixion was not the end of the story. We see this as the ladies discover the empty tomb on the first Easter morning. Early on Sunday morning as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him and fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead just as he said it would happen. see where his body was lying there are at least six times that Jesus predicted his own resurrection the crucifixion of Jesus is a heartbreaking painful moment but you and I need the empty tomb even though our focus is on Easter I remember the words from a favorite Christmas carol hark the herald angels sing mild he lays his glory by born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. An impacting reminder about Jesus and the crucifixion, the resurrection, is seen in these verses. First from Hebrews, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame because of the joy. Luke 15, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. From the book of jude now all glory to god who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault what is the joy that these biblical writers are talking about the joy is that jesus knew what was on the other side of the cross there was a joy that was enough motivation to keep him going through the very worst pain imaginable what causes rejoicing and celebrating in heaven why does Jude describe God as working with joy? What is this joy? It's us. It's you. It's me. It's the person next to you. It's the person you've never met. It's the person you like. It's the person you don't. It's the person that was alive a thousand years ago. It's the person that's going to be born tomorrow. It was us. We' are what causes the joy. We are what causes the joy. The man Jesus would endure the cross, and he would do it because he knew that on the other side of the cross was joy you and me we are the joy I'm sure I'm not alone in this but I always get emotional when I see video of a a member of the military that's been deployed and then they surprise a family member when they return back to the states something about this helps me understand what we're talking about with God and this reconciliation something about the joy of families being reunited The overwhelming emotions of someone that's been deployed coming home and seeing loved ones for the first time in a number of months, and while they've been away, it's been limited communication, and there's uncertainty about how it's all going and how safe they may be, but now they're back in each other's embrace. The love between people that we can see on display when heroes return home gives us a picture of the love of God towards us. The joy we can see in military families is a glimpse of the joy that God has when someone comes home. I found this in the book of Ezekiel this week. It's a wonderful perspective that I think is much needed for us today. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. The good news of Jesus changes people's lives. In my time in church leadership, I've seen so many people and heard so many stories of lives being completely transformed. I've heard so many of these stories, but somehow it fills me with a great sadness when I hear of other people, so many other people, people all through our culture, who are pushing aside the message of Jesus, who don't see the relevance of the message of Jesus, who are trying to find happiness and hope in so many different places, but there's not even on their radar to even consider the message of Jesus. Instead, people keep doing what they've always been doing. They keep doing what was causing the devastation in the first place. I think about the people who are hopeless and could have found hope. The people who are lost in addiction, and they can find freedom. People who feel damaged and unlovable, who can find dignity again. I wonder why people are refusing the invitation in Jesus to come and find freedom, joy, and peace. Why are people so determined to cling to the habits and mindsets that are causing widespread devastation? But interestingly, the more pain and upset that I see in the world, the more obvious it is that the message of Jesus is so desperately needed. I truly believe that we will see a mass spiritual awakening, that people will be sick and tired of the lives of the world, the hurt and pain that hedonism inevitably brings that will push people to look for better answers. And to hurting, heartbroken, confused, angry, remorseful, weary, and unloved people, we repeat this powerful verse from the Bible, that God clearly shows and proves His love for us by the fact That while we were still sinners, while we were still an absolute disaster, God died for us. If one person claps, we all have to. Why was Jesus crucified? That was his mission. To fulfill the mission, he went willingly. He had the power and ability to stop the guards who arrested him, the power to stop the religious leaders who lied about him. He had the power to overthrow Pilate who sentenced him and the soldiers who abused him and ended up nailing him to a cross. He had the power to stop all of it. And that brought us to the question of why did Jesus willingly go to the cross to fulfill God's promises? Because it was the only way to demonstrate God's love, to initiate the new covenant, and because he knew the outcome Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? My friend, it was for you. To fulfill God's promises to you. Because it was the only way to heal the broken relationship between God and you. To demonstrate God's love for you. It was to bring you into the new covenant. He knew the outcome would be you having the chance to have a reconciled relationship with our Heavenly Father both now and into eternity. And my friends, there is nothing more important than that. This is the greatest news any of us will ever hear. We preach Christ crucified. I got a couple of questions for you. If you're not in the habit of doing this, I suggest you grab a phone, grab a piece of paper, grab something, make a note. Two simple questions that hopefully will provoke some thought and some response for you. The first one is this, is what's the right response to the cross? What's the right response to the cross? The cross where Jesus' promises, that all the promises of God were fulfilled for you. The cross, which is where the broken relationship with you and God could be healed. The cross where God demonstrated his love. The cross that meant you could be brought into the new covenant. What's the right response to that? And the second question What's the wrong response to the cross? What's the wrong response? I honestly believe if you make a note of those and you return to this tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, Thursday lunchtime, and you just spend a few minutes and just think about it, the answers that will come back to you will really challenge you, hopefully in the best possible way. I wanted to um, share with you something that Megan and I learned in Bible college um, I'm going to tell you something. and I promise this is a true story. Um, our church history professor spent time describing uh, sort of the details of the crucifixion. And it was so gruesome that a kid literally passed out in class. Um, that's a true story. So I'm going to relay some of it, but not all of it, because we don't need that today. But the typical images that you and I have seen of crucifixions that we've seen depicted commonly, you know, we see pictures, we see, uh, you know, illustrated, showed in movies and so on. It's not exactly accurate. You see, it wasn't until about uh, the third century, possibly even the fourth century, that people started painting pictures of the crucifixion. In the, you know, first, second, even to the third century, the idea of, you you know, artwork like that wasn't very commonplace. And so it wasn't until a few hundred years after the Romans had stopped crucifying that they started painting pictures of crucifixions, which means that people were just kind of piecing together their best guess from the New Testament. But the New Testament doesn't give us details of how people were crucified because everybody at the time knew how people were crucified, so there was no need for them to write it down. Since then, archaeologists have found the bodies of people that were crucified and they're able to figure it out with forensic science. They're to figure out how actually did the Romans crucify people. And it's a little different. The first thing, and this is important, you were crucified naked. Why is that important? Because if you were crucified today naked, that would be embarrassing. It was doubly embarrassing 2,000 years ago. The shame that went with that, it cut against Old Testament scriptures. Remember, the whole point is to make sure peace. Do not mess with the Romans. And one of the key parts of crucifixion is the public disgrace of crucifixion. And one of the ways they ensured this disgrace was to hang you up there naked for anyone and everyone to walk past and jeer at you. Humiliation was the name of the game. And then when there's time for them to nail you to the cross, they would nail your hands, which is pretty typical to what we would see. Um, it's believed that it was through the wrist, because that way you could hang up there. But then what is slightly different is that if you see the pictures, it's oftentimes like the feet like this, and one nail is kind of going through both feet to keep them on the cross. That's not how it was. Is what the archaeologists believe as they kind of piece this together. But rather, you would bend back both legs. I'm not going to get on the floor and demonstrate. But you'd bend back both legs, and then with one nail, you would go through both Achilles' heels. with the the knee bent upwards. So with your nail to the cross through the wrist, and then one nail through the Achilles heel, you were nailed into an upright cross, and then they would lift the cross, and they would drop it into a hole that was estimated to be about two feet deep. And if you drop the cross into a hole that was two feet deep with you being nailed through your arms like this, the of being dropped into the hole, forced both of your shoulders to be dislocated. Which means to breathe, you have a choice. You either push up with your Achilles tendon with a nail jammed through there, or you have to lift yourself up on two dislocated shoulders. The whole point of crucifixion was to teach a lesson, don't mess with Rome. Naked, in excruciating pain, you hung there in the hot Middle Eastern sun until you couldn't breathe anymore. Awful cruel, evil, all so that the emperor could keep enjoying being a part of the empire. Now, with all that in mind, I don't tell you this just to be gruesome, but as we take communion together, it sheds some light for us. Let me read this from Luke's gospel. We've already read it today. I'll read it again. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. This is my body that is gonna be beaten by Roman soldiers, is gonna be whipped and scourged, a crown of thorns placed on my head, jammed in, and then I'm gonna have some nails shoved through my body onto a cross where I'm just gonna be in absolute agonizing pain, and it's given for you. And we're told as we share communion to do this in remembrance of him. You know, um, I'm known for being somewhat of a goofball. But it is right and it is appropriate that we stop and we have moments of seriousness to remember what it is that Jesus did. That horrible death that I described to you, my friend, it was for you. As we take the bread together, I, I beg you, please take this personally. Come on, everyone, let's take the bread together. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice. Here it is again for you. As we take the cup together, let's contemplate what that new covenant means for you and for me. Let's take this together. Lord, we're here to meet with you, to be challenged by your word. Lord, I pray that every single person here would be deeply impacted by the taking of communion today as we remember your body that was broken, that on the cross that you went to willingly for me and for everyone else in the world so that we had an opportunity to respond to you, Lord. Lord, so that your promises could be fulfilled. Lord, that there is no other way but through you. Lord, you knew what was on the other side. Oh, Lord, may this become a reality for us today, a day-to-day reality, not just a theological understanding, but true life change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, everybody, let's stand. Let's spend some more time in worship together. Amen.